Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Have you ever noticed that even though childhood was a long time ago, on some level, it feels like it was yesterday? In some cases, we recall positive experiences. In others, we remember our hurts and even worse, our traumas. On this episode, we will be talking about trauma and some ways you can help reduce its harmful effects. Dr. Mark Foreman is a psychologist and the author of a book called The Monster's Journey that details both clinical aspects of trauma as well as Mark's own personal experience with it. Mark's idea to use themes of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey and instead transpose a monster is profound and he will explain what that means and how it can be helpful to anyone who has experienced trauma. On a personal note, I have collaborated with Mark on various projects over the years. I have been impressed with Mark's clinical skills as well as his ability to articulate useful ideas that people can put into their own lives to improve their healing processes. So join Mark and me as we delve into healing trauma through his lens also known as The Monster's Journey. Dr. Mark Foreman, who has asked me to call him Mark, welcome to Super Psyched. Good to be here, Adam. So such a fascinating idea, transposing concepts from Joseph Campbell's classical hero's journey to The Monster's Journey, which is your new book. Can you describe both the hero's journey and how it led you to choosing to view trauma through the vantage point and roadmap of a monster? So I began doing certain types of growth practices when I was relatively young, about 17, 18 years old. And one of the figures that I was introduced to was Joseph Campbell, who at that point was older and had sort of established himself as one of the leading figures in the country when it comes to the topics of psychology and spirituality. So he was quite influential. For folks who might not know, he was really the influence for the Star Wars movies. His ideas were used to construct that script. And those ideas were called the hero's journey. And the hero's journey basically describes a, a normal person living in their everyday environment who gets what's called a call to adventure. So something happens that sort of upsets our normal routine and calls us into a bit of the unknown. So when in The Lord of the Rings, Frodo gets left the one ring of power that his uncle leaves him, this is his call to adventure because now what is he going to do with this one ring of power? And Gandalf, as a wise figure, is the wizard, comes in and they begin to work together to decide what adventure they need to take to eventually destroy the ring. That's what they decide. So a Campbell's hero's journey involves that stepping out of the normal, going on an adventure 
that often seems insurmountable, um, achieving a victory like Frodo achieves eventually at the end where the ring is destroyed, and then returning to his normal world with blessings. And these blessings are often symbolized in physical treasure or wealth. But as Campbell sees the myth, the real meaning is a type of spiritual growth or psychological insight that the hero can now bring to his or her fellow uh, community members. And this idea of what we call separation and then initiation into the mysteries of the world and then return is a very powerful guide to stories. And I would encourage your audience to go rent almost any movie mm-hmm. and look for that three-step process of everything's fine and then <laughs> everything in chaos and then the hero overcomes the quote-unquote bad guy and then returns in a new way to his home. Yeah, I'm thinking of three movies as you're talking about it. The Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy comes back to Oz utterly transformed. She didn't ask for it. It happened. Star Wars, where Luke Skywalker was visited by Obi-Wan Kenobi. Didn't ask for it. He wanted it, but he comes back transformed. And of course, Frodo, as you mentioned, knocked uh, receiving the knock from from Gandalf, uh, and he has to leave his comfort and comes back transformed. That's such a, a great way of holding uh, this. And then you came up with the idea of having a, a monster's journey, who I imagine also transforms. How did, how did you come up with monster? Yes. So it started out as a personal kind of inquiry, because as I was studying the monster, studying the hero's journey, excuse me, and trying to understand that way of transformation, I just had this very persistent sense that there's something about this that doesn't work for me and or it doesn't work completely. And I don't know what that is. Mm. And I think the first intuitions that I had were that there is something more difficult that I'm struggling with that interferes with a hero's journey. And that crystallized to an insight, which was basically this. I wasn't starting from the same place as the hero Mm. or the heroine. Heroes and heroines, again, start from this place of relative complacency and normality, Mm. um, sort of humdrum, Mm -hmm. uh, you could say. And I didn't feel that way at all. I felt like I was starting from a very difficult place. And this led to a a multi-year, maybe even decade-plus inquiry into what was so difficult. And the result that I came out of through uh, quite a lot of work was that I had had a lot of early trauma. Mm. And... My particular trauma was that my father, uh, when I was two or three, had become psychotic and had also become sort of megalomaniacal, mm-hmm. meaning he believed that he was the Messiah and that he was going to deliver 
the world really through his religious or spiritual worldview. And of course, as he was um, becoming the Messiah in his mind and experiencing this psychosis, his relationship with me deteriorated because how could he be a normal, caring father if he were so devoted? And so this period started where he started to break away from the family. I saw him less and less, and it culminated in when I was about five, Mm -hmm. he announced to me and to my brother and to my mother that he was moving to Israel, and that was where he was going. And all I knew at that point was that was incredibly far away, and I had the sense I was not going to see him again. And that, as a matter of fact, was what happened. So I'm now about 45, and that was when I was five. And so that was my early trauma. And that had a huge effect upon me. And in my mind, what characterizes the monster's journey is that there's these events, sometimes called adverse childhood events, that happen very early and they strip away the innocence of the child. And the result is the normal world now becomes very intimidating and imposing. The child doesn't know how to interact because one of their parents or both of their parents or close relatives have turned the world into a scary place. Because if we can't trust our parents or grandparents or whoever is raising us, then how can we trust the world? Right. So the ACE quiz, it's a quiz, uh, I believe it's available free online, and I'll provide the link in the show notes, is a quiz that asks questions about adverse childhood experiences, and they can be predictive of other risk factors associated with trauma. Can you talk about the risk factors that are associated with trauma itself? Yes, absolutely. So There was a large-scale study of these adverse childhood experiences, which included 10 different categories. I won't go over piece by piece. But the more categories a person scored, the more severe their later life outcomes were. So, for example, if a person had physical abuse and sexual abuse and emotional neglect, that would be three points on this A scale. And people with three points show a significant difference in their life outcomes than people with one point or zero points. Right. And it even looks like maybe three or four is a bit of a sweet spot, so to speak, in that we really see a lot of the differences. So all the way from the likelihood that a person will smoke, to the likelihood that a person will have 50 or more sexual partners and have contracted sexually transmitted disease, higher rates of heart disease, diabetes, I believe cancer, depression, suicidality, receiving medications for some kind of psychological issue, the rates of those go way up. So we see what is called the dose-response pattern. The higher the dose of these early, potentially traumatizing experiences, the higher the response, Mm -hmm. which is a very powerful 
finding when one finds that because it does suggest some causal link between the two. Sure. And that is basically where we are, that these adverse child experiences really have some direct line into the issues that we see as adults. Yeah. In so Mark, you've been a practicing psychologist for well over a decade and have had thousands of hours of clinical experience. And there have been great cognitive and body-based advances in mental health and treating trauma. In your experience of treating trauma, what seems to be the most helpful? So when someone asks me what they ought to do with trauma, particularly if the trauma is of this early developmental kind, meaning that it happens in childhood and that it's what they also might call interpersonal trauma, which is to say the trauma occurs between loved ones and a family or in a family. Yeah. So when the trauma is developmental and interpersonal, it gets very deep rooted in our psychological mindset and in our physical bodies in terms of how we react to and process emotion. And generally speaking, it becomes more difficult. Our reactions get intensified when we are triggered, so to speak, by a reminder mm-hmm. of the trauma. Our thoughts become more black and white mm-hmm. as opposed to the sort of slow, nuanced thinking that we sometimes can bring to a problem and sit down and say, hmm, what should I do? In the moments of trauma reaction, there's often just a lot of impulsivity and people reach for um, things that they think will help, like drugs and alcohol, just as a way to calm things down. Yep. But with treatment, we can help people learn to reach for uh, social support, learn to reach for self-regulation activities like exercise and meditation and other kinds of soothing activities. Sure. So when someone then comes in with this type of trauma and all that I've said about it, I will say basically your role is to do everything that you can possibly do over the course of time. Yeah. So there's a good body practice called somatic experiencing, mm-hmm. where we ask the person not to think of the trauma, but just to feel their body and let their body move or shake or express maybe some of these traumatized feelings underneath. There are whole forms of psychotherapy like uh, internal family systems. And I know you're familiar yeah, with that. Yeah, from yeah, it, was on the, uh, it was on the show. And part of that idea is that some of these hurt parts of ourselves come from the trauma or react to the trauma. And we have to treat them like a family and, as it were, find the wise adult in ourselves who can help soothe these parts that can be angry or uh, fearful or what they call fawning which means I'm going to lower myself to you because it makes me feel safe or because I'm not worthy Mm -hmm. of standing up as my own person. So there are so many body practices 
and so many cognitive practices that I just recommend people try each one by one as they can do it and as they can afford it. And typically what happens is people gain an element of recovery from all the different practices. They learn a new tool. They may get some real healing from the person that they work with. So in the monster's journey, I call, there is a stage I call meeting the healer. And that is meeting somebody who accepts the trauma survivor for who he or she is and can love them and give them uh, what Carl Rogers would call unconditional positive regard. Yeah. And to have that person enter your life and say, I see you and you're not all of the bad things that happen to you. You're not responsible. Uh, you are worthy and beautiful in yourself and you're okay to be you. And so that message is a inflection point in the monster's journey where the person suffering may start to see, oh yeah, this was not my fault Mm -hmm. that all these bad things happened in my family. You know, I love the way you're holding this and the idea of a father leaving his boy who's in single digits, the boy cannot really make much of an interpretation of what's actually going on that my father's actually having a psychotic break rather than thinking, oh my gosh, what it is about me that is so monstrous or so unacceptable, so unlovable that makes him flee from me. Uh, And the baggage that we carry is monstrous. I love the idea of a monster. Uh, We feel like, and it's scary to us. And what do we want to do with that monster? Well, we want to hide that monster away. We don't want to look at it. We want to self-soothe through all types of addictions. These days, uh, we can self-soothe by just, you know, doing stuff uh, on online. Uh, there's so there's just a host of ways for us to dissociate. And I like the idea of countering the dissociation by really, really entering our felt experiences through various modalities. And I agree with you. It's been my clinical experience that it's not a one size fits all that it's kind of more of a cafeteria experience and trying different things out uh, with somebody who really gets you and that the quality of the relationship with the practitioner to kind of borrow once again from that Rogerian concept of that unconditional positive regard that it's the relationship often that heals irrespective of the modality, but the modalities do matter um, as well. Um, I uh, am just delighted that you've created this idea of a monster's journey. I often hear about um, people's monsters and they are described similarly, these disavowed selves, what uh, Jung might refer to as shadow material that really, uh, and I love Jung's concept of the only way to get to the light is by really, really examining the dark. And I'm thinking about the vulnerability and the courage all of that requires, as well as the vulnerability and courage it required for you to pivot massively. Your last publication was an erudite, beautiful uh, academic piece of work that's a compendium on integral psychology, which we're not even going to get into. And then you divulge your own experiences. And uh, to kind of borrow from Brene Brown, She says something akin to, you can only be as brave as you are vulnerable. And there's so much vulnerability that comes through in this book. What was it like for you to share this really private personal material? Mm -hmm. 
I think it's a good question. So for readers, there are aspects of the monster's journey that talk about clinical psychology and the research in trauma. And then there are aspects in the book that really talk about story and how we see the monster in different stories and can track the stages. And that, of course, was what Joseph Campbell did with the hero. But I wanted to add a personal dimension. And I think what felt important was that I had worked through over a very long period of time some basic understanding of the trauma that I experienced as a child, particularly with my father's uh, psychosis and abandonment, and that I was ready to share about what that was like and how that unfolded in my life. And, you know, in the book, it's not a particularly light story at all, although there's much more light at the end because I experienced, you know, quite a bit of depression, uh, some periods of really intense anxiety, even a period of mania, which if you look at the literature is not surprising. People who have bit, who have a high adverse childhood experience score are 17 times more likely to go on a bipolar medicine. Mm. So, you know, and this might be through something like the stress causes early inflammation in the nervous system and that then cascades out. But it just felt like it was time to tell the story. And, you know, being in midlife, I'm more aware than ever that, you know, uh, we, we don't have forever to do what we want to do or to tell our story. So there was a little bit of urgency of wanting to say, this is how it happened to me. And hopefully you can see as the reader, I really struggled. It was not easy. I fumbled quite a bit trying to find what would help. And even as a therapist, I didn't just immediately know, oh, yes, I've been traumatized. I need to go to a trauma therapist. That actually was a, a long-term process that had to unfold before I felt ready to say, okay, I have been, I, I have been the survivor of trauma. What does that mean for my recovery? What, what do I need to do that is different? And one of the things was I needed to explore more avenues of trauma healing um, that I had just hadn't uh, had on my radar. Sure. So, um, you know, I'm thinking about just uh, once again, to bring back the courage that it takes to whether it's self-divulging in, in the book or to self-divulge in a psychotherapist's office, tremendous courage is required. And oftentimes it's going to feel worse before it's going to feel better. Is that consistent with your experience? In terms of sharing, it will feel... Sometimes it will feel better. Like sometimes a person will be, wow, how great it was to unload that story. And at another time, it could be like, wow, it was triggering just to really revisit that. Um, And that both of these are, in the long run, transformational and potentially healing. And yet they're vastly different experiences at times when you're yeah. in the therapist's office and both, both must be honored, it seems. Yes. Well, for me, I would say a couple of things. Probably my main therapist 
who was in 12-step work, which is relevant because 12-step work is almost constant self-disclosure. That's a means by which they form the groups they're in and connect and learn from one another. And so my therapist would often self-disclose difficult aspects of his childhood trauma, physical, emotional abuse, fairly severe. And that was so powerful for me because I respected him and had this feeling that he had, you know, arrived in his life as an adult and come out well in the process. But to hear him tell of these struggles that he had just made me feel human and like I could do it too. Sure. And so when I wrote the personal parts of the monster's journey, first of all, I wanted to tell a story that felt true. And to me, what came out felt like a true snapshot of things I had been through. But the hope was to say to people, you can weather this, you can develop resilience. You may never be uh, perfect. You may never be totally free from traumatic reactions. But if you can make progress, the quality of your life will deeply improve. Mm -hmm. And that improvement, while not making or justifying the trauma, will make it feel like, okay, I went through that and I can live my life now. Mm -hmm. Freedom is so powerful when we can discover it when we can discover the parts of ourselves that are not as touched by the trauma. Yeah. Um, and so the, the personal piece was an invitation to that, to say, look, if I could do it, you can do it too. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a gift maybe, to the reader. Yeah. And maybe even do it more efficiently and uh, somewhat more easily. Um, mm -hmm. I felt I went the long way around a lot of yeah. time. Yeah, many, many roads to get there. And yours felt like it was particularly long. And you're hoping that you may have saved some people some steps along the journey. That's really great. You know, in addition to adverse childhood experiences, many of us are genetically loaded to be resilient or sensitive to trauma. And there's a lot of research showing that the descendants of Holocaust survivors um, may have epigenetic factors that lead them more likely to experience a trauma in their life. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you know about our genes, including epigenetics and how they factor into our response to trauma. It's not my particular realm of expertise, although I'm aware of some of the studies that you're mentioning. And I just think about it in two ways. One, that there's this possible genetic mechanism where the older generation experiences stress. And that seems to show up in the behavior of the younger generation down at least through the grandchildren. So we would call that intergenerational trauma. And I think it's a worthwhile thing to pay attention to. However, I also believe, having worked with many clients, that it's the behaviors and the emotions and how they relate to people that into the world at large that gets modeled generation by generation. So 
in my family, they were from the Ukraine and Russia. And so they experienced what are called the pogroms, which are somewhat like the Holocaust in that they involve the sort of genocide and ethnic cleansing of Jewish folks. And that's three or four generations back for me. And I'd often have this conversation with my mother, and she would tell me that her mother, who I never met, you know, had an element of traumatization in her personality and in her behaviors, and that my mother felt like she was, quote unquote, taught something by my grandmother about the world that was, we needed to be wary and careful and anxious. And so I think a lot about that intergenerational modeling mm-hmm, the messages and messages as the sort of main route. It's also the route we can control, so to speak, in that if we can intervene in families and help them process the trauma of something like the Holocaust, or it could be something like the trauma of racial segregation in the U.S., which was not that long ago either, in which members of the African-American community have a memory of, uh, which they can you know, clearly pass along to their kids through certain beliefs or behaviors which were formed in response to the trauma. I also see folks, you know, occasionally Persian folks who are coming out of the Iraq-Iran war Mm. in 1980 and seeing how that often hardens the generation uh, who lived through it and that that creates some tension and maybe some vicarious trauma in the earlier generation, in the newer generation, because they've learned from their parents that the world is incredibly dangerous. Mm-hmm. So I see this as a cross-cultural thing, and it's an inquiry I always bring to trauma, dis- trauma discussions to see how far back uh, trauma might go in a family. Mm-hmm. That's worthwhile to know both for me as the therapist, but also for the person themselves. You know, I'm thinking about uh, just how powerful reharnessing one's story can be as you're talking about this. And I remember, I believe it was Terry Real, and I think this is what he said, that when we attend to trauma, it's as if we're looking at a chair that we've sat in many times, and it breaks into a gazillion pieces. And as we attend to the trauma, uh, we put that chair back together. It's not the same chair it was when we first sat in it, but it becomes it can become stronger. And um, I've always taken issue with the idea of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger because it's partially true. What doesn't kill you might actually really cripple a person if they don't attend to it in a healthful way. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger if you deal with it uh, through various modes of perhaps psychotherapy and and talking about it with safe people and entering good and healthy relationships. And uh, I'm thinking about how you have uh, kind of reshaped your monster. How how is where's your monster today? He still lives for sure. I am more aware of what triggers that aspect of my personality more than I ever have been. So I'm much less surprised 
if I have a reaction to something that would be upsetting, even mysterious ones, like if there's a little period of financial instability or something like that, for some reason that will kick off some feelings of lack of safety in my early childhood that were present, Hmm. even though money was not the main concern uh, around the time of my trauma. So I'm in a watchful relationship with the parts of me that are hurt. And in many periods and times, it's almost as if the trauma has really faded. The analogy that I like to use, and I know that some other people use, is that Trauma can become a little bit like a moon during the daytime, Hmm. which is to say that if you've ever seen the moon Mm -hmm. up in the sky, it's very faded. Mm -hmm. You know, you see it, but it's it's nothing like the moon in the nighttime, which shines more brightly than anything else. And in at my best, the trauma is like that. It's like oh, I love that analogy. It's one of the best I've ever heard, Mark. Minimized now. If some big triggers happen, I might kind of spiral a little bit into some traumatized places. I know a little bit better how to sort of uh, kind of shelter in place, if it were, and try to soothe myself. I know that I need to talk to people. Um, I know that I need to just do things that help with self-regulation. So I live in a way that I know that the trauma feelings can come back, but I have more of a game plan in response. Whereas when I was younger, of course, the trauma responses would come and I had A, no idea they were trauma responses and B, no idea what to do. Sure. Um, So the arc of the, the monster's journey, just to maybe finish this one piece, is that the monster starts out in this very difficult place. They have to live in a period where they may be just surrounded by traumatic events or interactions. They then have to take a step to move out into the world, even though they've got all this hurt and baggage. And then if they're, if they're seeking, they'll likely meet the healer and begin the trajectory of working on the trauma with a healer and through practices, meaning different therapeutic practices, different body practices. And if they keep doing that, they'll arrive at a place where they'll start to feel comfortable in the normal world, and they'll be a part of what is going on around them, as opposed to alienated or frightful. And then even past that, there may be opportunities, and these are optional as far as I'm concerned, for forgiveness for the perpetrators, um, for repair of relationships. So uh, there's uh, an enormous high side to going on the whole monster's journey, as opposed to just identifying, okay, I I fit this, this journey more than the hero's journey. You know, I'm thinking about the fact I know you fairly well and that you're an introvert. And I'm guessing, I mean, when I'm not guessing, when we are traumatized, in addition to the dissociation that we may experience through the trauma, the urge to cocoon might be really powerful. So I would think that particularly for the introvert who is traumatized, the urge to cocoon and not reach out to other people 
would be very much a, uh, a risk factor because one of the ways that we heal is through people. Huh? <laughs> and I was just wondering, how did you override either the urge to cocoon or your you know, tendency toward introversion and reach out to others? How did you override that? I would say that if you are an introvert and a trauma survivor, a certain amount of introvert care is part of recovery. So accepting that one has an introvert tendency and spending some time nurturing that. So I often think, okay, I'm an introvert and, uh, and I have a meditation practice. And so there's a connection there that really is helpful in that I can go to a sort of a place of solitude and meditate sort of deeply in myself. Sure. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, it's a two-edged sword. Sure. And I can also do the type of isolation, which we know can be very detrimental when people are feeling depressed or anxious or alone. And so uh, for me, that has been connecting with friends who are trustworthy and, and strong and who can hold a tough story. And, and then maybe who I can hold the story for them. Some members of my family, not all, can be real supports because they can have that conversation about some tough things. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I've had the opportunity and the privilege and to sort of explore therapy. And so I've had a couple of very significant therapists who came into my life, which is a wide range, men and women, wide range of theoretical views and, and ways of approaching it. But from each one, I was able to take a piece that I could put back into myself. And one of the pieces I took back was my extroverted side does need contact. It does need social connection. And I can't just survive in an introverted world. So the concept of balance, the concept of wholeness becomes really true and important in the recovery process. Great point, Mark. Well, our last question, Mark, if you had the magical ability to confer on everyone on the planet who carried trauma, some form of a greater awareness of how to deal with it, what effect do you imagine it would have on humanity and the individuals within it? In the world that I'm in, and as you're in, Adam, where we're meeting regularly with people who are hurt, many Mm -hmm. of them have trauma. I just could not imagine the degree of free energy that would be released Mm. because trauma sort of binds up a lot of our emotional and psychological energy just because we're trying to keep it down or maybe keep it in check and not react in certain circumstances. And so much effort goes into that. And I see that in my life. So it would just be the release of untapped creativity, untapped feelings of positivity and kindness. So if I could take the world's trauma away, I mean, that would be magic wand mm-hmm. with number one for certain from where I sit in the world. That would be the biggest thing. That would be so great. I, I love that world that you've just created. What a A lovely vision. Mark, thanks so much for taking time to share your wisdom with my listeners and just 
divulging who you are, both as a practitioner and as a human being in Monster's Journey. Uh, highly recommended that people take a look at it. And I'm glad to have you on the show. Adam, it was a total pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to spread the word a little bit. I hope that people, if they resonate with uh, anything that's been said today, will check out the book and see if it's for them. No book is for everybody, but my hope is that this book will reach um, trauma survivors who are now adults and who want a new way to think about the journey that they're on. So thank you again for giving me the, the platform. My pleasure. Share. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. 